Welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Reynolds, and today I have the pleasure of four people with me uh, on this podcast. I have a co-host and I have a co-co-host. So the co-host today by popular vote is Luis Hall Valdez. Um, and then our co-co-host is Dennis Rasmussen. And both of you have been on as hosts or co-hosts before, I think, on the podcast. So I think um, uh, it's good to have you back. And I'm looking forward to what you contribute to the conversation today. So welcome, Luis. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, and then our special guests today are uh, two uh, prominent figures, both in functional safety and also uh, in the emerging um integration of functional safety and security as well. And this is a, this is something that I've felt like has needed to happen for quite a long time um, and is now getting traction and happening in a more meaningful way, I believe. And we'll have to ask the experts here how, how much traction they feel that, that it's getting. But, um, uh, you know, most uh, functional safety standards say that if you're going to have an automated system that's relied upon for safety, then it has to be trustworthy, which means it has to have protection against hardware fault, uh, hardware faults, uh, random hardware failures, and then also systematic failures and that sort of thing. And usually deep inside these standards, there's a, a little clause that says, and you must address cybersecurity. It just kind of says that in there. And I've talked with a lot of people out in the industry, and I say, well, what do you do with that? And I get a couple different answers. Um, one of them might be, oh, uh, our IT department handles that. We, we just uh, have them do a check of what we're doing before it goes out, and that's how we handle that. Uh, or they say, oh, I've never noticed that one before. Right? You know? <laughs> so uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, traction still to be gained in in assessment as it relates to uh, functional safety uh, of, of security measures. Uh, and that's an exciting thing for me. So today we have uh, uh, two special guests. We have John McDonald, uh, and then we also have uh, Matthias Heinel. And we had a, uh, a discussion about Matthias's name before we started recording this episode. Uh, and he was very gracious with me about the pronunciation of his name. Uh, so I appreciate that, Matthias. So welcome, John. Welcome, Matthias. Thank you. Good to be here. So I think we're going to start off with just getting to know you guys a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, and I like to ask a very simple question. Uh, where were you born? And how did you get to be where you are today, uh, working in this industry and focusing on, uh, uh, on what you focus on today? John, you want to go first? or So... <laughs> I was born in Fort Riley, Kansas, um, which actually doesn't mean a whole lot because I lived there six months. I've never been back since. My dad was it, Army. So it's that I'm good a town, Army I guess. Huh? Right. <laughs> I honestly couldn't tell you. It's, uh, you know, the uh, the whole military prison thing being there, Leavenworth close by. Anyway, um, my dad was Army, so I, I you know moved around a lot. I think before I was 18, the longest I lived in one place was three years Uh mm. You know, three different times living in Germany, moving around the world, that sort of stuff. So very, uh, very active and, and flexible, you know, lifestyle growing up. 
Yeah. So you're uh, what they is, is the term. I'm going to use the term. I hope I don't offend you with it. Is the term army brat offensive or that's, is it? Oh, God, no. That's yeah. that's what we all call ourselves. So, OK, not at all. That is a, a very unique. I was in the service for nine years and I have some kids and uh, yeah, that's enough about me, I suppose. But the, the interesting thing about children who grow up like that is, like you said, there's home is everywhere and home is nowhere. Right. So. So, you, well, yeah, I mean, you get the uh, like you said, I, you know, I even in my after getting out of the military myself and, and you know, doing some additional moving around, uh, even in my professional life, the last 20, 25 years, I mean, I was in a job for a while where I was on the road 75% of the time, uh, you know, traveling for business, you know, three weeks around Europe, Asia, that sort of stuff. And, you know, to me, it, it just didn't seem like all that much of a burden. It was just, you know, that's normal when you move around and do things like that. Yeah. Yeah, my wife says that I get the three-year itch, right? You know, not, not the seven-year itch of our marriage, right? But you know, it, you know, every two to three years when you're in the service, you're picking up, moving to somewhere else, and uh, so she says that I get that sometimes. So I, I think I've stretched it out to five years now. So I think that's helpful. That's good. So did you say yeah, that you were in the you were in the service as well? Yes, I was in the Air Force for six years. Oh, great! What what did you do in the Air Force? <laughs> Program computers. So it was one of the, uh, back in the day when the Air Force actually did a lot of that stuff in-house, you know, back in the early 80s. And so I, you know, got out of high school, joined the Air Force, and went right into computer programming. First job was programming COBOL on punched cards. Punch cards? Yes. Paper. Punch cards in the 80s. That's a, that's a little... Nope, that's the Air, Air Force had their, uh, one of their primary mainframes were still running COBOL and... Now they actually switched to terminal shortly after I got in, but I was actually first first few six months I was there was punch cards. Wow! So when we talk about legacy code, uh, <laughs> you, you, you have a, actually, I still have a deck here somewhere. I forget where, but uh, uh, anyway. yeah, yeah, legacy code. That's uh, and the ironic thing is, is every six months I still get requests from headhunters about COBOL programming jobs. So, oh man, well I'm sure it's a it's a rare thing nowadays. Um, you know, um, my, my undergrad was in aero and I remember at the time that they had us, this was in the, uh, late nineties, uh, and they were having this program in Fortran. And so all of my, you know, everybody else was saying, why are you programming in an old language? It's because all of the computational fluid dynamics code was written in Fortran and you had to maintain this yep. code base over time. I think it's similar with COBOL is basically the, more business version of, uh, of Fortran yep. anyway. Right. So, so I could see you, so you still get headhunters call you and say, can, can we send you a bunch oh, of punch yeah. cards and can you turn them into? Well, it's more, I, I still have the word COBOL somewhere on my resume on LinkedIn or something like that. So I think they flag on that. And I actually still occasionally write COBOL programs just for grins and giggles. Wow. Thank you for being vulnerable and letting us know that about yourself. Oh, no so problem. That's... No problem. Hey, John, if I can yeah. comment on that real yeah. quick. I, I used to work for IBM and uh, mainframe and, and uh, punch cards were a big part of uh, what they did. Right. And uh, yeah, I can attest to the fact that they're still looking for COBOL programmers. It's still very, very uh, in demand because they're so hard to find now. Yeah. I think the term you're looking for is a dying breed. Most of us yeah. are so damn old. I didn't want to go there, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's pretty cool. It kind of remo- reminds me of that old uh, movie Stargate, you know, where they had to go find the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic mm-hmm. hieroglyphic translator so they could open a portal to another dimension or something like that. So uh, maybe that's a little too grandiose, but you know, it's nice to yeah. nice to think about it that way. So cool. Well, John, uh, so you uh, you're in the Air Force and you you um, you cut your teeth on uh, computer programming there, and then after that. Um, I assume you, you said you did a lot of traveling. Were, were you in a in a consulting role or in a in a maintenance role or what? I have probably done every single IT related role you could name in my career. It went from uh, Air Force to Digital Equipment Corporation. For those of you that remember that company, um, then probably five, six, seven years of, of smaller consulting companies, then uh, EMC. RSA Corporation for 13 years, and now TUV Rhineland for the last seven years. Hmm. Total of around 43 years plus in the industry. Wow. So you have seen quite a development in things um, from punch cards to cloud computing, right? You know, I mean, you, 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 that's yep. a that's a, a pretty unique perspective, I think. Um, so good. So you so you've been working now in functional safety for I assume, is that nope no cybersecurity. I'm the cybersecurity side of the house. Matthias is the functional safety ah, side. So okay. The uh, last twenty plus years has been primarily uh, cybersecurity related. You know, initially starting off as you know we call it cowboy because there weren't any standards or regulations. We went off and did what we thought was right. You know, moved to more of a standards-driven compliance requirements type things with the various standards, regulations, and frameworks and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, transition from the seat of your pants to a more risk-driven type approach, where you actually start quantifying things. So, um, and and worked on cybersecurity for medical devices, industrial control systems, IT environments, uh, automotive systems, and you know. To your earlier comment about my long-term, you know, perspective in terms of, of having been around a while, um, I always find it interesting to come into an, a, a customer and, and do an assessment and see them they're doing the same stupid stuff that was being done 20, 25 years ago that everyone knows you shouldn't do anymore, but they still do. So, yeah, that's a it, it's an it's an interesting problem that I, I like that you talked about the risk-based approach because that's certainly where cybersecurity and functional safety have commonality, right? Um, but um, I think there's an important difference between the two is, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe rather than me saying what I think is a difference, maybe I could ask you because you're, you're, you're an expert there. Well, there's a couple of, of you know, compare and contrast items. You know, one is, is functional safety tends to deal more with the, accidental or mistakes you you messed up the design something broke something fired Cybersecurity, you're much more focused on intentional actions people intending to do things and to some degree functional safety can be much more tightly bound because you know there are mechanical is mechanical you go from this stop to this stop and, and nothing outside of that Cybersecurity has much more of a gray area that there's things that change on a daily basis you know one bitter bite somewhere in millions of lines of code can make a difference between you know an attacker getting in or or your system being protected so much 
wider and I think also a much deeper um, range of things you need to consider with cybersecurity. But, you know, for the most part, and one of your comments earlier, Eric, was around, you know, this is something that is somewhat relatively recent. Um, but if you look at, for example, medical device cybersecurity, and actually, do you mind if I share something really fast on the screen? I wanted to. Sure, sure, yeah. You have to talk me, through uh, it uh, because we don't publish the yeah. video. But, oh, not a problem. Yeah. Um, let's see. Window. This is a standard called AAMITIR57. And let me know when that shows up on the screen there. And what it is is a uh, cybersecurity risk assessment process for medical devices. And it's roughly eight years old. And what it explicitly calls out is, okay, you've got a security risk process and you have a safety risk process. And the two of them really, as you said, need to be integrated. You've got cybersecurity risks that could allow someone to take control of a device or gain access to, uh, well, not information, but, you know, change the behavior of a device, which obviously has a potential safety risk in, uh, component to it. And then you've got potential safety considerations. Um, you know, a good example, uh, a device in an ER that you don't want the doctor to have to remember their password for when someone's sitting there bleeding to death. So there's a safety consideration. So we don't put a password on it. Now that becomes a cybersecurity risk. So, you know, the two processes really need to be very strongly integrated. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out, we've done safety for a long time. It's well understood, well established. Cybersecurity, to a large degree, in most organizations is still, you know, somewhat the wild, wild west. They don't have the resources. They don't have the uh, organizational structure, if you will, that, that you really need to, to do this sort of thing effectively. Yeah. Well, I think that thanks for sharing that. So I thought what's great about it is it, it mapped the two processes together and showed, you know, from risk assessment to mitigation to follow up and, and control it, you know, that's the, it's the same fundamental process. And, you know, the, the, the fancy word for that's an isomorphology, right? Things that look different, but they're yep. the same underneath, right? The same structure, yep. you know, a nerve cell and a tree root, you know, th those kind of stuff. Yep. So I think what's, what's important that you said, a lot of things are important that you said is, uh, uh, cybersecurity is by nature adversarial. You, the, you have an intelligent actor who's trying to make things fail. So try as you may, uh, physics isn't going to change how much it's trying to break your safety system, right? You know, the, uh, suddenly all of a sudden it's not going to come up with a new way to, uh, to, to, you know, to corrode your solder or whatever it is, right. And cause a, cause a hardware failure. Right. But there are active people and even not people who are, uh, who are trying to, uh, uh, constantly learn and change, uh, the vector of the attack. Right. And, and, you know, we give names to these things like zero days and other types of stuff like that. And, um, I think it's a hard thing. And I think, I, I honestly feel like, how hard it is and how ambiguous it is, is what makes people kind of say, uh, well, I'm, I'm, well, let's just see how, you know, I think what we're doing is good, right? You know, we, we've got, let's just go. I think we're good. We, we haven't had an attack before. We haven't had a compromise before. And I had a, uh, I had a client a, a few years ago and I, well, I'll speak in general terms, um, about it, but, uh, the client was going for de novo 
FDA approval for a medical device. Now, this was not a, what I would call a, uh, you know, an emergency situation medical device. It was just used in a hospital setting, right? And quite frankly, if I told you what it was, you'd say, wow, that classifies as a medical device, right? But, but the FDA does. Um, and uh, just about that time, some guidance had come out uh, where the FDA was saying, you need to do cybersecurity uh, when you submit your, your de novo filing, right? Uh, of a new, of a new, uh, de novo is a new, the new device that's never been a- approved before by the FDA. Uh, and they, everybody says, great, all right, how do we do it? And then you open it up and it says, you need to do cybersecurity, right? You know, it's, it's, it's not very specific. And, and Dennis, I think you're encountering this problem in Europe as well right now, aren't you? Definitely. In Europe right now, we are seeing new demands for, for cybersecurity called NIST2, uh, where suppliers for the critical infrastructure of Europe they need to be in compliance with this, but but it's a European directive, and it's still on a directive level, so you have no standards underneath it right now. I'm sorry, have you looked at eighty one thousand dash five dash one? No, but because that's actually that. my understanding is that's <laughs> either is or is about to become a harmonized standard for cybersecurity for medical devices for the EU. So. Yeah. No problem. Thank That's you, very Tom. helpful, John. So <laughs> let me let me push a little bit on that. What you said, you you said it either is or is about to become. What do you know the t- the timeline on when that would be the case? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me to describe the the EU's regulatory process. I spend as little time as I can looking at that. I just say, tell me when it's there, because I, I spent one long week trying to really dig down into how the EU was going with the new CRA, uh, Cyber Resilience Act. And I literally couldn't get to sleep for two more nights. I mean, the, the process is so convoluted. It, it's a, it's not just a government process. It's what, 12, 16, 20 government processes all rolled into one. Anyway, yeah. um, I, I don't know what the, the schedule on that is. Sorry. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've, uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you answered honestly about that because you know because <laughs> we we have um, we have a lot of clients, uh, especially uh, everything from startups to big companies who are saying, okay, now there's this new regulation, this directive that's come out, right, and we have to comply with it, but the standard that will allow us to show that we've to directly show that we've complied with it won't be out for three or four or five more years, right? So what do we do in the meantime? Do we just not launch our product for three years, for five years or whatever? Um, <laughs> well, so yeah, go ahead. In now. most, I was going to say in most areas, like I said, you know, for industrial control systems, IOT stuff, you've got the IEC 62443 series, which mm-hmm. has been out for a few years, you know, 81,000-5-81,001-5-1, I just mentioned, is essentially, literally, it says it's 62443 for medical devices. And that's been out for, what, a year, year and a half now. So the, the, the standards, I think, are kind of at the cusp of catching up with what the government regulators and requirements are looking for. Um, the, the problem is, and it, it's keeping up with them. It, it's identifying them, finding them. You know, the medical devices, if you look through the new FDA guidance that was just published this year, their updated guidance, they reference literally 12, 14 different standards for different things. Um, So it's not a case of, you know, what's that old cartoon about 
someone was saying, oh my God, we've got 12 different standards that you know deal with this particular topic. That's ridiculous. We need one unified standard. A few weeks later, we now have 13 different standards that deal with this <laughs> one. Right. So, you know, it, it's all this stuff thrown together, but it's just a matter of keeping up with what's there. And, you know, the standards are pretty good. 81,000-1-5-1 is very high level. It just tells you what you need to do, not how to do it. And then it references other standards that have much more detailed uh, requirements like 62443 that you can leverage, but it doesn't try to lock you into one way of doing things. You know, 21434 for vehicle cybersecurity, 62443 for industrial, they all provide some fairly detailed drill down, but the standards are there. It's just a matter of, of understanding them and making sure you're applying them correctly. Yeah. Well, thank you. We've, we've got some standards to go look at. I know Dennis... Uh, even before he came to work with us, he regularly read standards for fun. So, I, I think... <laughs> so, and you know, and there's something wrong with that. Come on. <laughs> no, I, I do want to say as well, John. You know, I, I uh, you know, you said something earlier that you looked at it for a couple of days and then you lost sleep and then you finally said, "Okay, I'm going to get back to doing what I'm doing." And you're an expert in. Well, yeah, I, that was the government process. That wasn't the standard. Yeah. Once the standard came out, I'm good. I'm fine with that. Good. It, good. It's the, the government interactions, agencies, approvals, reviews, all that stuff. I just, I don't bother losing sleep over anymore. Just tell me when it's available and I'll look at it. But yeah. sorry. No, that's, that's very good. You know, just, just uh, don't bother me with how the sausage is made. Just tell me when it's in the window yeah. and I can buy it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yep. very good. Well, good, John. Well, thanks for giving us an introduction and kind of priming us yep. for a conversation. I'm going to uh, switch over to Matthias, if if that's all right, and and talk with sure. you you a little bit. So, um, uh, you know, Matthias, historically, and your 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 perspective has been functional safety as opposed to John's uh, cybersecurity perspective. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, and then we can integrate the two of them. But I'm going to ask you the same question: um, Where were you born? Uh, well, I was born in a, in a small city um, in Germany, close to Berlin. Uh, unfortunately, that was the east part of Germany. Oh, wow. So until until I turned 18, I think it wasn't really on the agenda ever to visit the west part of Germany or even to live in the U.S. It was uh, not an option at all, <laughs> put it this way. Wow, okay. So east Germany, and I'm taking from what you say, before the wall came to you know, the, the, the change, uh, the huge change, uh, in Germany and the world, really, I would, I would argue. Um, so, okay. So you grew up there and went to school. Did you, did you go to school there? Did you go, go to university there or, or I, I, of course, you know, I went to school there and, um, of course, Russian was mandatory, which, which I guess makes sense because East part was occupied by the Russians. So it is, you know, good if you can understand at least the word freeze. <laughs> so that you know <laughs> when oh, to wow. stop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's good that you can laugh about it now. So uh, I guess, do, do, do you speak Russian or do you, do you have Russian capability? Uh, yes, it was mandatory for at least five years to learn it in school. Uh, I can probably still read it. Uh, speaking, understanding. If you don't use a language, you're mm. probably going to. If you don't use a language, you're going to lose it. So that's. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I, so I would say you know limited, really limited. Well, I I think I can. 
I can understand that. Uh, I have been a amateur linguist, and I mean extremely amateur for a long time because I, I, I just really am fascinated by how different languages help frame the different thoughts that you can form in a in a culture. Right? You know, there's some things that you can't say in English that you can say in other languages and vice versa. And, and I think that's a, you know, there's a long history of debate between the real linguists, Noam Chomsky and all these other guys about why that is and how it imp- impacts everything. But I just think it's really interesting and I'm going somewhere with this. So don't worry. I'm not just rambling about stuff. So, you know, um, so I've studied, uh, uh, of course I live in Texas, so I've studied Spanish for, for a while. And I also studied uh, Mandarin in, in China for some time as well, too. And I thought, yeah, I'm pretty good at Spanish. I can do that. Boy, go try to learn Mandarin. My goodness, right? You know, um, I've also got fascinated by Greek for a little while, which I think structurally is similar to Russian um, with the way they do declensions and, you know, the, we, you know English and um, Spanish and other ones are subject, verb, object kind of languages so you structure the sentence in the same way but matthias uh since you're uh, at least on this podcast our russian language expert um uh, <laughs> my understanding in russian is that you can change the order of words in a sentence very much more than you can in english or something because the prefixes and endings you put on words tell whether they're a direct object or whatever it is right I guess it's true, yeah. yes. I lo- hey, you know yeah. what? Whenever two Franlin tells me I guess that's true, I count it as certified. So <laughs> we're going <laughs> But uh, here's why I think it's important. Because, John, in your world, when you're writing code or when you're doing things right, that the coding language that you're using needs to be appropriate to what you're, to what you're doing, right? And um, Should be, yeah. Should be. So if you do COBOL uh, in a situation where perhaps you should be using I don't know, give me another language, Rust. Python. Python, yeah, something like that, right? You know, the, there's different capabilities native to that. And that's how I'm going to tie all that together, and I don't know. And and then, of course, we have Dennis, who has the hardest language in the world to learn. I think, like, documented the hardest language in the world, right? Uh, Danish, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's a mixture of German and uh, the language from the Netherlands and so on. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. So, uh, so well, thank you, Matthias. I, I had no idea uh, that you had that in your, in your background. So, um, right. And, and the question, another question was, did I study? Uh, short answer is uh, no. Um, I think I didn't always agree what the mm. party wanted to hear. So, that was probably the reason why I studied electrical engineering later on in my career once uh, the reunification of Germany did happen. Oh, I see. So you, you waited after your, I don't, I don't know if, uh, after your high school years, you waited and then went to, went to university exactly, yeah. after. Yeah. And did you go in the West or did you stay in the East? Or? I stayed in the East. Good, good. Okay. Um, so John had a change in over his career from punch cards to uh, to Python, I guess, right? And and <laughs> you've had a, a similar quite a quite a change there. So uh, okay, so you studied electrical engineering at university, and then um, did you move directly then into compliance and and that sort of thing, or did you have other careers as well? 
No, I worked as a I worked as a design engineer for software hardware design um, in a smaller engineering uh, company in the east part of Germany for a couple of years, and uh, then I decided later on, you know, why not working for TUV? I mean, you know, what what can possibly go wrong? So I I applied for it. They were looking for engineers, and uh, I really found it challenging, and. I also realized that probably, you know, I mean, you're in the, at the university, you will learn things like uh, how to approach a new subject, but they really don't teach you how to deal with safety issues. There's, I, don't, I don't think there was ever a course related to electrical safety. Nope. You just get out of the door and your first project, you know, ends up with a device that's connected to line voltage and you don't really know what to do. And same with functional safety. So. When I started working for TUV, uh, when I started working for TUV, um, I mean it was more than twenty years ago by now, and I do remember talking to um, older assessors, inspectors, and you know they just taught me that software, for instance, can never be used to perform a safety function because it's completely unreliable, it's unpredictable. And I mean, see where we are, know where we are now. I mean, software is used in every sensor and every device. I mean, there's not even a simple sensor nowadays. They have also microcontrollers, microprocessors embedded. And now our new challenges are related to machine learning. How can this be used in a safety context? What are, uh, what are the boundaries here? So it's just, you know, we are, I think really technology is moving forward. And I think that always kept, you know, challenging me. That's probably the reason why it's, you know, state working as an inspector or assessor. Yeah, I think that's uh, so true. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't that long ago that people were still saying you can't use software in a safety system. And then, you know, the 61508 series and family of, of standards came out and, and people complain about uh, how perhaps uh, difficult that standard can be to understand how to implement well right but we forget often that it was made so that you can use software and so that you can use other types of technologies it was meant to to allow for innovation and i think that's one of the really interesting things about the industry that we're in uh is that by nature standards lag invention and innovation they they have to yes um you can't make a standard for something that doesn't exist yet. You know, just like you, there's some word, there's some thoughts you can't express in some languages, right? You know, the, the same, you can't make a, a standard for, for a technology that doesn't exist yet. But then once that technology exists, it's incumbent upon the, or once the world changes in some small or major way, it's incumbent upon the standards writing community to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we address safety and security risk with this? And I think that if going back to the medical device example I brought earlier, that one, the, di the major difficulty we had was uh, this device was connected to the cloud for some things. And at the time, uh, we had difficulty with saying, well, if you're connected to the cloud, then we need to see the entire stack of things that you're doing all the way from the embedded code on a microcontroller on a on the board somewhere all the way to your cloud compute with 
you know, way up in over at uh, Luis's old company, IBM, right? We need to we need to certify all of all of IBM or something, right? You know, in the approval. I'm being a little bit facetious, but it's not far off. the The question is, where do you draw the line? Where do where do, and how do you how do you handle that? Um, and so we had a lot of discussion. That's still at the time was being figured out, but um, and I think now, Matthias, you bring up this this concept of machine learning or AI and. Uh, right now, I don't know if 61508 says you can't use machine learning, but it says something like not recommended or something, which pretty much means you can't, right? Uh, yes, so. yes, it does. And this probably goes back to your earlier point. Um, I mean, 61508 was updated, which is the basic standard for functional safety and, and uh, 2010. It's, you know, like 13 years ago. And of course, technology it's moving forward. I mean, it's over a decade now. And yeah, machine learning is not recommended. But I think back then, machine learning was not really quite understood in terms of functional safety. I'm a little curious, Matthias, as an assessor, if uh, it's not recommended and, and somebody does use it, um, how do you how do you approach that as an assessor? As an assessor, it's easy. You can always say no. <laughs> That's um, the default <laughs> default answer. Just <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> at, at this point in time, uh, I mean, there's no there's no standard that is available that would enable you completely to perform an assessment for a machine learning algorithm, for instance, for object detection. So you would always have to come up with a smart idea how you're going to monitor the outcome of this algorithm. Uh, maybe you have still have some standard algorithms um, for, uh, for instance, for object detection that could be used at least as a, as a monitor, as an envelope uh, around this machine learning algorithm. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, okay, so we've talked about kind of some similarities of, uh, for functional safety, the, the technology is changing over time and assessment and standards have to find ways to uh, not hinder that technology from being deployed to the benefit of society. And cybersecurity is kind of the same way the, the, the space is changing all the time. Uh, from an adversarial perspective. And so I think it's really interesting to have both of you working as assessors and kind of giving us your perspective on on that. Um, I'd like to see if we could integrate the two now a little bit. Um, and, and say, so um, I, don't, I don't know, would a, would a hypothetical be, be helpful to talk through? Sure. Uh, I have found that when you talk with assessors, it's nice to say, hypothetically, if we were going to do this, <laughs> Uh, it depends. <laughs> That's right. So um, let's say we have a hypothetical situation where we have a uh, some sort of uh, uh, safety system that, that is operating, uh, and it is a connected device. And we're trying to uh, get the safety system certified, third-party certified, and um, we would approach... Um, both you, Matthias, and both you, John, say, we know we need the functional safety part assessed. And John, we know that we need the cybersecurity part assessed. Uh, what would be the process that you guys would go through to, you know, what would you need? What would you, what, 
how long does it take? What, what would be uh, in this hypothetical situation? What would be your approach? From a cybersecurity perspective, yeah, like I said, it depends. Um, what are you talking about? An industrial control system? You talk about a medical device? Are you talking about U.S.? You talk about EU? Let's talk about a uh, collaborative robotics application in the EU. Is that is that helpful? Yeah, I mean, so basically, what we consider a, an operational technology industrial control system type setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in, in that case, it, it's several layers from a cybersecurity perspective. And by the way, you actually raised a good point, which is Matthias has, you know, functional safety standards. I've got cybersecurity standards and functional safety says thou shalt do cybersecurity. You go figure out cybersecurity says you need to consider functional safety, but there's no standard that says this is how you integrate the two. Anyway, uh, back to your example, the standard would probably be IEC 62443 and what the certification now the, the interesting thing about 62443 is they recognize that both the development process as well as the device itself impact cybersecurity so there's actually separate certifications within the standard for the development process and then there's a device or product certification so from a cybersecurity perspective it would be you need a 62443-4-1 life cycle management or development cybersecurity process when you develop the product. You need a 62443-4-2 product certification for cybersecurity, which, by the way, you can't get without having the 4-1 cybersecurity. You can, but don't worry about that. Um, so anyway, you, you would need basically those two certifications, the organizational and then the product level. Part of the product level, similar to that diagram I showed you a little while ago, uh, would incorporate, and, and what Matthias would probably be looking for is, okay, show us the risks you've identified out of cybersecurity that could impact functional safety, and then verifying that the functional safety risk assessment took those into account. The flip side of that, this is much less understood, is how can identified functional safety hazards or safety issues, whatever you want to call them, how could any of those or the resulting controls that come out of those feedback into the cybersecurity risk process? A little bit less understood. It's implied everywhere, not necessarily explicitly called out anywhere, though, except once again on the medical device side. So, you know, that's what we'd look for is those two certifications and the integration of making sure that when you looked at all those risk factors, you know, functional safety says, okay, we want to have a... Um, we got to have a big red button on this thing to shut it down, right? Well, if it's on the body of the button and the thing's going crazy and whipping around and everything like that, that's a functional safety control you can't get to. So that's now a potential, if it's whipping around because of a cybersecurity risk, you're basically, you know, in that cross area between the two. You need to figure out how to, how to mitigate that. Matthias, what about, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, let's let Matthias talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually, I mean, what is... Um... But what should be done is uh, like like a two-step approach uh, that would be uh, really advised. So when we are um, contacted and we know 
your example that will be a new control or a new design whatsoever we would recommend to follow at least a, like a concept level review assessment and this can be done from a cybersecurity point of view as well as um, and talking about cybersecurity issues as well as from functional safety perspective and at, at this level we would ask you know what are um, what are your needed levels for risk reduction? So for functional safety, you have like four levels for risk reduction. For security, you have uh, SL levels, security levels uh, mentioned under the 62443 series. So we would definitely like to get an understanding what is required for the product. And this, in the end, will be driven by the market, will be driven by the final application. And um, let's assume, you know, they know the answer to that. That's not always the case. Uh, so from my experience, if I ask clients, you know, what is the security level for your device? Sometimes they just don't know. And that's always <clears throat> probably difficult to implement if, uh, requirement. You don't really know what will be the overall level for that. Uh, for SIL, that's maybe a little bit easier. Um, and then with the concept, you are really trying to figure out if the, you know, if the architecture is sound is valid uh, to deal with this level of uh, risk reduction needed from a functional safety point of view and maybe also from a security level point of view and <clears throat> i mean yep cybersecurity can impact functional safety there's no question about that uh, for instance if you have uh, if you think about your system integrity of this uh, of this robot uh, cell or amr you could have unauthorized access you could change maybe uh, configuration you could change maybe trip points for for speed and this definitely could lead to a potential hazardous situation and this is really what functional safety is concerned about so you would like to avoid that someone you know is going to have harm that there are accidents going to happen but uh, as it also was as i think john you explained it earlier uh, functional safety is much more concerned about systematic as, as well as random faults and Usually, of course, nobody is is uh, intentionally seeding random or systematic faults uh, in your design, in your product, uh, so that it will fail. I mean, for consumer products, sometimes it seems that as soon as your warranty is up, your product fails, but maybe that's a different <laughs> issue. Uh, for for cybersecurity, on the other hand, and, and John also, I echo that, is uh, he said, <clears throat> you have to deal with uh, intentional attacks that will compromise your integrity of your design. Uh, so that's just a complete different approach compared uh, to functional safety. And um, yeah, if you think about it, also functional safety, I would argue, could be a one-time exercise. So if there are no changes to your product, if you have no bugs in your software, um, there are no new safety functions marketing or end users would like to implement. So you're not, you don't really have to change your product at all. And let's say the functional safety standards also have no additional requirements. There's no need to perform a you know, functional safety assessment again. From a cybersecurity perspective, I would argue you always <laughs> constantly have to monitor if there are new vulnerabilities out. You always have to have different management uh, on top of that to make sure that you are going to address that. And most likely, you know, you probably will have to update your software, your firmware more frequently. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Matthias and John, for both of those perspectives. I'm going to I'm going to pull out some commonalities, and then I'm going to extend our hypothetical a little bit here, if, <laughs> if that's okay. So, uh, sure. so the commonalities that I see is uh, it is there is 
the general and the specific. There is the process that you use to do your engineering work, design, development, deployment, all of that. That process needs to be compliant from the beginning to the end. And then the product needs to be compliant as well, specifically related to either the safety functions it's performing or the security capability that it has. Um, and there's this Venn diagram of overlap between those two, uh, where you, you know, some of the same things that you're assessing for the process for functional safety are also satisfying some of the same things you have to assess for the process for cybersecurity, right? There, there, there's an overlap there. But I think, Matthias, you brought out a very important difference is, um, well, I'll, I'll try to talk about it through the hypothetical. Let's say that, um, hypothetically, um, uh, a, a company comes forward with an already designed collaborative robotic application and they come and say, hey, I would like to get a functional safety certification on this particular safety system that's on my collaborative robot. I've already got it designed. Here's five samples of it. I'm going to give it to you, and I'd, I'd like for you to, to certify it. Um, what would be your, would you be able to issue a certificate in that, in that situation, Matthias? Probably not, uh, and the issue, I guess, would be that if the robot or or um, yeah was designed without having functional safety uh, requirements in place, uh, that's very likely going to fail. If this was just a standard robot, for instance, yeah. and the issue usually is you you cannot just bolt on functional safety later on to your design. As you mentioned, it's not just it's not just a technical. Um, requirements you will have to meet, like I don't know, like diagnostics and fault avoidance. But there's also, you know, there's also a management portion that needs to be considered. Um, and in functional safety terms, it would be the management of functional safety. And you have something similar for for the cybersecurity. And usually, from uh, from my experience, um, is that at least some changes um, would have to be implemented from a functional safety perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought you would say. I mean, perhaps, Matthias, if you if you had been the one who developed the, the robot and you handed it over, it would probably be okay. You know, there would probably be some changes, <laughs> but, it, I, I, you know, you, you would uh, you would have, have an understanding. Of course, you couldn't assess that, right? Of course, you, your own work, right? You know, an issue is ridiculous. So, John, I'll ask you as well the same right. question. If I... if if I'm, if I'm at a company and I've developed a collaborative robotic application and it's a connected device, it's supposed to be interfacing in some way with the outside world, however we define the outside world. If I come in and deliver that to you, here's five samples of my, of my device. Uh, here's my documentation. You say, I, I would like a certificate from you about my cybersecurity capability. What would you be able to assess? Um. Based on just that, no, because as I mentioned earlier, the 62443-4-2 certification, which is the product level certification that I'm assuming you'd be asking for, one of the very first requirements in there is thou shalt have a development process that is compliant with 62443-4-1. So I basically say if I, you got two choices, you can either get your process certified, show me that certificate, in which case I can go through and do this, or B, Every single time you want a product certified, I can go back and do an entire 4-1 level assessment on your process. 
So, but without that process behind it, and that, that, honestly, I think that's one of the very smart things they did with the 62443 standard because, you know, it's impossible for anyone to test every possible iteration of, of cybersecurity attack or whatever against any given device. So the process behind it um, basically builds in a lot of controls that help you potentially address a very wide range of types of attacks you might see that you might not be able to actively test against, you know, uh, an employee putting a backdoor in or a, a bug or vulnerability or third-party components you use. You know, there's only so much you can test for with just the device itself. Having that process gives you a, a much higher degree of assurance that a wider range of risk scenarios can be addressed by the device. Right. Well, I thought you would say that as well, right? So we have a commonality here. And, and unfortunately, what I see in the, in the marketplace, and perhaps you, you guys see it as well, is many well-meaning product managers, well-meaning engineers uh, trying to design something that the world wants and the world needs, right? Uh, and then, uh, but perhaps they have no experience with compliance or with, sa or with safety, or perhaps they have a limited experience. So Matthias, maybe they've done a project like you talked about earlier, where you build a machine and you, you call somebody and he comes out with some equipment and he runs some uh, high pot tests and things on it. He puts a puts a, uh, a a mark on the on the machine and it's okay. Maybe that's or they or they in the past they've said, well, we just went to this place and got an EMC test and now we're good, right? You know, these are these are common. I mean, it's it's not a for lack of wanting to do something. It's just uh, for for a misunderstanding of what's required. And and so I wanted to hear it straight from the uh, straight from the experts here, like. Uh, uh, if you don't consider both safety and security from the initial napkin drawing, the development of your product, you're not going to be able to achieve a certification and therefore you're going to be denied access to the entire European market. I would argue that, and, and here again, I absolutely despise absolutes. No, um, right. you, yeah. you can't get a certification for a reasonable amount of money. You can get a certification ah, yes. if you're willing to make the investment, which and, and this is a little bit of a soapbox thing. I, I've done dozens of uh, cybersecurity program development processes, helping customers build their medical device, industrial device, IT infrastructure, cybersecurity program. Um, and honestly, average is probably 25 to 30 percent of my time on every single product is spent on resource development and uh, organizational considerations. To your earlier point, we didn't think about that. We haven't hired anyone. We don't know who's responsible. No one wants to take responsibility. We can't invest in that training. It's, you know, the actual bits and bytes, the fiddly bits of, of the actual security stuff isn't all that difficult. It's everything up front. And to your point, Eric, the investment was never made. It was never considered. So they're scrambling to try to retrofit cybersecurity into something that was never designed for it. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly exactly the point that I wanted to, to, to bring out here. Uh, and the other thing too, is I'll go back to the discussion we had earlier. Standards are meant to enable innovation and technology. And by innovation, I mean, not just a cool new idea, but it's deployment at scale, right? That's what I define as kind of innovation, right? Standards are meant to say, how do we do this at a bigger scale? So it may seem like an extra burden to go and get a process assessed for safety or for security for your development process.
But really what I'm hearing you say, John, is once you do that, now it enables you to develop other products at pace much faster because you know your process is already compliant and now you just have to focus more on the product side of things. Is that is that an accurate statement? To a large degree, yes. And, and it's, you know, right now you can call it a market differentiator, enabler, or whatever. Uh, three, four, five years down the road, it's going to be, you don't have it, you don't sell your product. Right. So right now it's a, this is something we really probably should be doing to, to improve our product. Three, four, five years down the road, guys, we, we can't sell it. We're out of business because we don't do this. That's where the market's going. Well, uh, very, very interesting stuff. Okay, the, the last thing, I know we're, we've gone, this may be our longest episode ever, which tells me, <laughs> t- t- tells you guys how interested I am in, in talking to you guys, right? Um, uh, the final thing that I'll say is one differentiator I'd like to bring up between functional safety and cybersecurity is um, the operational availability of the system. So I'll ask Matthias first, and then I'll ask John afterwards, right? So from a certification standpoint, um, how concerned would an assessor be if a safety system uh, negatively impact the operational uptime of a system? Let's take our collaborative robotics example. If the safety system performs its safety functions to remove hazards uh, and to prevent uh, injury to humans or the environment or whatever it's designed for, um, but it also cuts the factory uh, throughput by 50%, how much does the assessor pay attention to that? Is that part of the assessment? Traditionally, it's not part of the assessment because you would argue if so, if so, if this robot um, stops what's doing, um, it's safe. I mean, the harm usually or the risk usually is that someone's going to be harmed by in, by motion. Um, and if the robot it stops what's doing, you know, it's safe. Maybe it's useless, but it's kind of safe. Um, and I would. But this is a good point you brought up here. In particular, if you're talking about EMRs or, or general speaking robots, you could have a you know a really safe robot uh, or EMR uh, that is just stopping all the time because maybe there's something uh, that's a, I don't know that's an obstacle detection system detects. Maybe it has it is too sensitive to certain uh, to certain environments that. As I said, it's safe, but maybe it is too safe. So you also have to make it uh, smart, uh, so to say. So you have to make sure that it's not negatively impacting the um, the output of the factory or the output or what you're going to produce. Um, and in the end, I think that that really is a challenge here. Yes, de- definitely so. So there's this continual struggle between false negatives and false positives so spurious trips and true detect true true safety events right you know and and they're almost at odds with one another there's architectural things that you can do to try to lean one way or the other but there's always a price to pay for it so um i think john i'd like to ask ask, oh sorry matthias go ahead no i was just saying and i would argue that probably finding the balance that is uh, that really is a challenge mm-hmm. that's right the safest uh, collaborative robot system is the one that's in a box in the corner 
and is not turned on, right? You know, so uh, so right, right. But it, it could still fall anything. over and hurt somebody. That's so true. You, <laughs> That's true. Safest is the one that doesn't exist. The, yeah, there you go. Even nothingness, right? Um, <laughs> and I do remember a client called me once, and he asked me, Matthias, you know, we, we need a safe turbine. My answer was, don't turn mm, it on. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. Right? Uh, that that you, it's a that's why the risk based approach works, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so John, I'll ask you the same question, but with a slightly different thing. So, let's say that we have a fleet of these collaborative robots out working in the world, uh, and Matthias has issued a safety certificate for for this fleet. Uh, let's say there's a million of them working. And then, uh, John, you've issued a security, uh, uh, a security uh, a capability certification. for them, certification right. for them. Um, and now, a, a brand new let's let's get into the realm of Hollywood. A brand new zero day attack comes up, and we're able <gasps> to, yeah, wow, yeah, headline across that the never happens. You know, yeah, <laughs> a brand new one comes out, and they find a way to exploit, and they're able to. Uh, they're able to access this fleet management of all of these, all of these collaborative robots and to say, I don't know, shut them down or make them do a dance or whatever, whatever they decide that they want to try to do with it. Right. Um, from Matias's perspective, he would, he would pro I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you'd probably say, do the safety functions still work? Yes. They're, they're isolated from the cloud. They, they operate independently from that. Right or let's say that that's happened hypothetically. But John, from your operational technology perspective, do you care about about that in your assessment? Um, oh God, it depends. Um, so <laughs> it, it, really, it, it all goes back to what you said right before you asked me the question we've been saying all along is, is the whole risk assessment combined with what we call life cycle management, right? So the risk assessment um, is... Does this implementing a control to prevent or minimize, you know, you mentioned a zero day. People tend to think of them as a discrete solution. Zero days there, somebody can get in. All the security standards focus on layered defenses. So even if there is a zero day, we've got two or three other things here that could prevent a breach from occurring or being leveraged. Um, but we do that risk assessment. By the way, you ever heard of something called FAIR, Factor Analysis and Information Risk? No, We're actually at the point now where we could do financial quantification of impacts of cybersecurity risks. So if you've got a fleet of a million of these things um, and you, you know, the, the developer, the designer says, do we want to add this extra security layer in there? Well, okay, it's going to cost us $100,000 of product or project money to add that other layer in there. But to your point, if the risk is that a zero days discovered, taken over, we've got a million of these things that are going to be down for, you know, two days while we fix them. But guess what? That $100,000 now looks like a really good investment, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we do that risk analysis. And then the second part is the life cycle. So that zero day comes out. If the organization that produces this or made these things is monitoring, doing their threat intelligence, monitoring, identifying that, can identify what the impact is and can quickly notify customers that either here's a patch you need to implement if they could do a patch, here's a mitigating control you need to turn off this port on all your firewalls, or the mitigation might be shut these things off until we have a patch. Yes, we know it's going to cost you a boatload of money, but you're going to save lives. 
So it's the combination of understanding the risk beforehand and having the appropriate risk re risk response subsequent to product shift, that whole life cycle management of cybersecurity. You know, to, to Matthias's point, once functional safety is done, it's pretty much done. Cybersecurity literally changes, can change on an hour by hour basis. So you've got to have that whole long-term life cycle investment in there and you've got to have those responses in place, but most importantly, you have to understand the risk, the real risks, not just the, the generic, yeah, we might find a new vulnerability. How do we address that type thing? Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I appreciate that. And I know I'm getting long-winded here, but this is just, there's just so many things <laughs> to talk about. Uh, I, want, I want to bring up one last thing maybe we can close with is that sure. a common risk to both of these approaches is um, let's get another <clears throat> hypothetical, <clears throat> and I'll say this one's not very hypothetical because I've seen it actually happen, um, and I'll speak in general terms. So let's say that you have a system that you've designed and certified uh, for safety uh, and for security, right? Uh, and then geopolitical things change, and now certain components are no longer allowed to be sourced from certain countries around the world. And now you have to go and swap out a component and look for a like-for-like like change and then readdress the safety and security certification implications of those things. Um, the reason I bring this up is because if you have a process in place already that's compliant, then what you're talking about is a like-for-like like component change with, of course, some there's going to be code changes. There's going to be other things that have to go along with it. If you've done a one-off type certification, uh, uh, like you said, the, the really expensive one, John, that you talked about, mm -hmm. like, you know, if you've done that one, Your then process, you, have to, yep. you have to do it all over again. Right? You know, you, 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 you're, you're, the, the, the pivot uh, can go from being, you know, a month's long process to a year's long process. And those, are, those can be company killers, right? Um, I think so. I'm not trying to catastrophize or anything like that, but these are just real things that I've seen happen. And anybody who's listening, I'd like them to say, hey, and maybe you're in a different situation, but uh, you really need to, it is worth the upfront effort to do your due diligence and make sure that you're aware of these things before you, before you go on into the big wide world. So, yep, manage, manage the risk on an ongoing basis. Do the risk assessment on the replacement component you just mentioned. If it's big enough, do I need to issue a recall? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yep. Well, very good. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think we were scheduled to go for an hour and we've gone over that. So thank you for the extra time. I know both of your time is very valuable. Um, John, you've got some COBOL punch cards to go and organize. <laughs> I, write Py I write Python on Raspberry Pis these days, but anyway. Oh, do you really? Okay. That's yeah. well, hey. my, home, my home control and security systems, all homegrown Python on Raspberry Pis. So. And that's a way different language, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've programmed COBOL, Basic, Assembly Language, Fortran, C, C++, Python, Visual Basic, pretty much everything. It's like standards. Once you understand the underlying concepts, the rest is just syntax. Yeah, yes. I'm, I'm bowing down over here, old syntax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, what it what it takes to to reach this level is age. So that, that that's the trade off. 
Yeah. Bir- birthdays, huh? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, yep. well, very good. Well, well, thank you, Matthias. Thank you, John, for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I, I hope we can um, have you back sometime. We can continue talking about this or other topics. And um, I guess I'd like to say, is, is there anything you, um, you'd like to say uh, before we sign off? Anything about uh, what you do or, or how far? Oh, Dennis has a Dennis uh, has a has a question or a comment. Well, I have definitely been a sponge today uh, because being a business development manager and hearing these two experts in cybersecurity and functional safety uh, with years and years of experience mentioning a word called return on investment and working with startups and scale-ups in in Europe and Denmark, which sometimes have a negative uh, annual report for the years and years trying to hit it in the market, and, and listening to you guys saying, well, you need to do your due diligence and you need to think about cybersecurity and functional safety, and it will help you three, four, five years down the line. And that's one thing. That's my comment for today. The other thing is you forgot a very important question you always ask. Oh, I do. I do. I, I do ask a question. It's been a little while since we've recorded one of these and I didn't sleep much. So I usually ask a question. I, I usually give warnings to people beforehand, but I didn't for you guys. So I usually ask people, since we're a safety podcast, what's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? And I, I give people a little time to think about it during the, during the conversation. So, uh, I, I, I'd like to ask you guys that question. You're welcome to answer it or not answer it. You can modify it and say, uh, this is the most dangerous thing I'm ever, I've ever done that I'm willing to admit to publicly. Uh, I would ask, please do not admit to any criminal activities. I don't want us to be, <laughs> we have a record of people Cri- not going criminal, to prison. Criminal in what, criminal in what country? Um, <laughs> that's a good point. You know, we might be criminals in some countries right now, just, to, just having this podcast. So, um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting Sorry. thing because, you know, safety and, and maybe we could spin it for you, John. What's the most, uh, insecure thing you've ever done? I, I, I don't mean like emotionally, <laughs> but I mean like, uh, you know, uh, so whatever way, if you're open to talking about, it, I think it's interesting. Well, in, in terms of, of personal safety type risk, but I'll, I'll take a Matias approach here. Uh, back in my Air Force days, I actually volunteered to go down to El Salvador for three weeks to help them set some stuff up. And at the time, um, there were, you know, regular ambushes, explosions, IEDs, uh, automatic weapons fire constantly going on in the area. So, uh, you know, armed escort to and from the hotel every day. I had to wear the, the whole bulletproof vest thing and uh, but yeah, I volunteered for it because I was young and stupid and obviously thought I was bulletproof. Mm. Wow. And, and, uh, yes, I, I, there was, it was that during the Salvadorian civil war, I suppose that was, yep. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and they sent you down there to do punch cards. Uh, basically, or... Well, <laughs> nah, we, at, at the time we were using terminals, but it was actually helped to set up a, an operational planning system for the, the San Salvador, the El Salvador military. Wow. Wow. So. Uh, man, what, what, okay. We're going to have to talk about that story a little bit more because <laughs> that, that in itself is worth its own uh, episode, I think. So, uh, yeah, man, I want to hear more too. That's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about boring safety and security stuff. We should have just asked John that question at the beginning. Right. Uh, good. Well, thank you, John. That's that's a You're welcome. That's a interesting thank you for having me. Matthias, are you interested in answering this question? Or? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? I mean, I'm, I'm driving a motorcycle, but that's all safe. That's all. <laughs> that's all easy. Uh, probably, um, let's see. Um, I would call out one of my scuba dives. So I'm also a scuba diver, and probably I did at one point in time. I did also. I was also interested in diving at night. So we so we did a night dive. And I'm not sure if you are if you ever did scuba diving at night. Um, I think it was really challenging. It wasn't really unsafe, but it was really pushing me to the limits. Just from a, I think just from a mental point of view, you know, it's that you don't get um, hyperventilated. I mean, mm. it is definitely a lot of stress putting on on top you're in a kind of really uncomfortable situation and i'm not sure if i would ever do that again yeah. <laughs> so i guess the, i guess uh I, i've scuba dived before but i've never never at night or in caves or any of those you know what, what would be considered more so i guess is the difficulty at night is your orientation of knowing up down the orientation down. yeah of, of course i think the orientation is definitely limited so if you're, and then on top of that, uh, if you forgot to recharge your light and your light goes out, well. <laughs> That's why you use glow sticks. Those things never go out. <laughs> so, and hopefully not yeah. in shark-filled waters yeah. also. You get a, a bright, shiny light with all the fish coming up to, to see you, right? So, uh, Right, yeah. right. You are definitely... A risk taker, Matthias. I couldn't even handle a little one of those little moped motorcycles in Cozumel last week. I, I wrecked it within <laughs> two minutes of getting it. <laughs> you are definitely a risk taker. That's incredible, yeah. man. I love this. Uh, John's like, yeah, I remember when I deployed to the Salvadorian Civil War and set up a cybersecurity <laughs> terminal for them back at, you know, and <laughs> Matias is like, yeah, I remember when I rode a motorcycle to do a night dive and sharks and Luis is like, I wrecked a moped one time. Right? <laughs> 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 um, but no, I, I think that the reason I like to bring this out is uh, everybody kind of views safety engineers as these ultra uh, risk averse conservative folks who, who, you know, are always worried all the time, right? And I find it's exactly the opposite. You know, people who are involved in safety have this risk, risk calibrated approach to things. And often everybody I've had on here, they do things that other people would consider, oh, kind of, kind of dangerous. They do skydiving or they do uh, motorcycle riding or they, you know, do things like you guys have just talked about. And it just, uh, it's interesting to me to, to see the, the, the mentality that seems to be common among safety and security engineers. So good. Okay. Well, um, next time we'll, uh, John, Matias, Dennis, Luis, we'll, we'll all get motorcycles and ride down to San Salvador <laughs> and we'll do a podcast episode from there. Does that sound good? Underwater. Underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Sounds like a master plan. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, thanks, guys.